This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. Well, today we're really looking forward to chatting to Wendy Erskine. She's got a second collection of short stories called Dance Move, just out from Stinging Fly Press. We begin, though, with some poetry from Ukraine. Коли міста вже не було, почався бій за кладовище, а саме надходив Великдень. І дерев'яні хрести на свіжих могилах випустили свої паперові квіти. Червоні, блакитні, жовті, салатові, оранжеві, малинові. Crow wheels. When the city was destroyed, they started fighting over the cemetery. It was right before Easter, and wooden crosses over the freshly dug graves put out their paper blossoms, red, blue, yellow, neon green, orange, raspberry pink. Joyful relatives poured vodka for themselves and for the dead straight into their graves, and the dead asked for more and more and more, and the relatives just kept pouring. The celebration went on, but at some point, a young man tripped over the stretchers at the grave of his mother-in-law. An old man stared into the sky and found himself missing an eye. A fat man smashed his shot glass and damaged the edging around his wife's grave. Glass fell at his feet like hail. Easter came. Now a live crow sits on top of a grave of Anna Andreevna Voronova instead of a gravestone. Beteor 80 wheels rest at the cemetery nest of the Kolesnikov family, where lie buried Maria Viktorivna Pilip Vasilyevich and Mikola Pilipovich. What are they to me, those wheels and that crow? I can no longer remember. That was the poem Crow Wheels by Leoba Yakimchuk read in Ukrainian by the poet herself and in English translation by Oksana Maksinchuk and Max Rosochinsky, read by Enda Wiley. The poem was originally published in the April 2016 issue of Words Without Borders and we're grateful to Words Without Borders for permission to reproduce it here. Lyuba Yakimchuk's collections include Apricots of Donbass, which focused on the conflict in that region, and her work is widely translated. 
She was named in 2015 in the Kyiv New Time magazine as one of the 100 most influential people culturally in Ukraine. Actually, she appeared very recently at the Scottish Poetry Festival Stanza and she talked about how strange it was to wake up to silence. War is no novelty to her. She's from the Donbass area and she was visiting her parents there in 2015 when the area was invaded by Russian troops. A Russian military leader has been living in her parents' house for five years, sleeping in her parents' bed. She said in an interview that she started drafts of poems about the current conflict, but doesn't feel able to finish the collection. I have had no time to finish, she says. This aggression, I see it like being some virus. You can't do anything while it's happening. Just fight this virus. But what can poetry do in a situation like this? Does it have any place in a zone of conflict, in the heart of war or oppression? Or is it a luxury that needs peace to flourish? Part of the answer to that might be provided by a poem by Ilya Kaminsky. He was born in the now direly threatened Odessa, um, which he left in 1993. His family was granted political asylum by the United States then in 1993, and they settled in Rochester, New York. And after his father's death in 1994, he began to write poems in English. And he has said, I chose English because no one in my family or friends knew it. No one I spoke to could read what I wrote. I myself did not know the language. It was a parallel reality and insanely beautiful freedom. And it still is. He lost most of his hearing at the age of four after a doctor misdiagnosed mumps as a cold. And that feeds into one of his best known books, which is the collection Deaf Republic, which has been hailed as a contemporary epic, a perfectly extraordinary book from a poet described by the writer Garth Greenwell as one of the most brilliant of his generation. Deaf Republic is an investigation into what happens to language in a time of crisis, how we carry on and how we try to remain human, he's explained. It's something I'm trying to find out in my book and in my life. It consists of about 60 lyric poems. Some are only a couple of lines long and it tells the story of a fictional town whose inhabitants react to the murder of a deaf child by shutting their ears. Little Petja's crime is to spit at an army sergeant who's arrived to break up a public gathering in a time of, of martial law. Deafness passes through us like a police whistle, say the townspeople of Asenka, who are described by the author as the we who tell the story. And Peter, one of the poems from that collection it's called We Lived Happily During the War. It went viral during the first week of this current conflict, didn't it? That's right. And I was wondering if you'd like to read it for us. I would indeed. We Lived Happily During the War by Ilya Kaminsky. And when they bombed other people's houses, we protested, but not enough. We opposed them, but not enough. I was in my bed. Around my bed, America was falling. Invisible house by invisible house by invisible house. I took a chair outside and watched the sun. In the sixth month of a disastrous rain, in the house of money, in the street of money, in the city of money, in the country of money, our great country of money, we, forgive us, lived happily during the war.
Today at the breakfast table, we're delighted to welcome Wendy Erskine, whose second collection of stories, Dance Move, has recently been published by the very innovative Stinging Fly Press. Wendy lives in Belfast, where she's head of English and is a drama teacher at a grammar school in East Belfast. Her first collection, Sweet Home, published in 2018, was shortlisted for the Edge Hill Prize and the Republic of Consciousness Prize. It was also longlisted for the Gordon Byrne Prize and the 2020 Butler Literary Award. She's recently been appointed to a fellowship at the Seamus Heaney Centre at Queen's University Belfast. Dance Move is a collection that moves to its own original beat. Here are 11 singular stories, each with their own particular pattern, but each sharing an empathy for the unexpected intricacies of being alive. Wendy is an intimate writer. She's one possessed of a distinctive wry wit. She's a natural storyteller, a writer so skilled at drawing us into the lives of her characters that afterwards, when the book is closed, I for one found it impossible to forget them. And I kept wondering what's happening to each of them after I'd finished reading the collection. So it's a very good sign indeed. And Wendy, you're very welcome to Books for Breakfast. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Enda. Thank you so much for asking me. Well, I've really enjoyed the collection. So congratulations, Really, really did enjoy it. Their, their stories are full of life. They have their own comedy, their drama, their sadness. There's the unexpected, the weird, the funny. And I was just wondering, your book has an epigraph to the stories. It's a quote from William Blake from his Auguries of Innocence, where he says, joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. And there is a balance between joy and woe in your stories. There's a grimness there, but it's not all grimness, I think it's fair to say. And I'm thinking of the title story Dance Move, where Kate, the the, the kind of middle-aged mother, is disapproving of her daughter and her friend. They're gyrating sexually in her garden to this dance. And she says, that decking has been put down by Kate's dad. That made it worse. So in the middle of all this, there's this humour. So I was just wondering, can you tell us a little bit about this balancing of light and dark in this particular story, Dance Move? And then maybe we'd love to hear you read a little bit from it. Yes, absolutely. That's what I'm always aiming for, I suppose. That balance of that balance of light and shade, that kind of idea of life encompassing all sorts of aspects and some of those are, are positive some of those are some of those are negative and so that was why I wanted that quotation at the at the beginning of the of the book for the epigraph I'd also tried to get Sylvester do you want a funk but the the money I think for um getting that or licensing that was was going to be too too excessive and um, so in that particular story dance move it's called dance move and it is literally about dance because Kate observes her daughter as you as you were saying and doing these dance moves that she finds she finds very challenging to her as a mother in terms of her perception of her daughter and um, but also challenging to her as well as a as a as a woman I suppose you would say who has had particular experiences in the in the past so it's all to do with sexual repression it's all to do as well though with um paralysis and it's to do with paralysis quite literally um but also paralysis as well in a more metaphorical sense but yeah I'm also wanting to write stories that are going to make people laugh, that are going to that are going to delight people in terms of you know a kind of ridiculousness, the kind of you know 
sort of surreal quality that that life can often that life can often take so it's never strategic it's never schematic that i'm never sitting down and going okay so we've had quite a lot of grimness let's get the let's get the balance up with a few pages of gags or something that would be that would be a terrible way to work i think um but it's but it's something that's just to do with my sensibility i think as an individual my sensibility mm-hmm. as a writer that that's what i'm interesting now that what that's what i'm interested in now where it becomes where it becomes, I suppose, um, not a problem, but where it becomes, where it becomes more complex, I suppose, if there's some people that just don't find the stories funny at all, mm-hmm. um, that due to their their own situated culture or their own kind of sensibility or whatever, they don't see the humor, and therefore then these stories will probably come across as quite as quite serious and quite grim or whatever. But- yeah, that's their loss, I think. Yeah, I'm very glad to have got the humor in it. So it's a story with so much going on. But oh, we'd love to hear a little bit from it, Wendy, actually, if you wouldn't mind reading a piece. Certainly, certainly. I'll just start from the I'll just start from the very beginning and I'll, I'll just read maybe the first the first page or so. A woman Kate knows went to beginners pole dance. At the end of the six week course, in addition to a certificate, there was an evening event for family and friends. The studio put a video of it online. Oh no, Kate said. All sorts of people could watch it. Let them, the woman replied. If they've got the inclination, I couldn't care less. Today, Kate is watching ballet dancers. The video is titled The Top 15 in the World. A woman on a vast black stage takes demure steps. On to another. A woman in chiffon wisps dances in front of a set with fake stone steps and a fresco. Kate searches for sexual modern ballet to see what comes up. A couple both in black shirts and black knickers clinch, disentangle, then clinch again. It's tasteful. Places in the vicinity offer dance classes, if that's what Clara would like. When Kate phones, they say there are no spots left in beginner's ballet. What about tap, they suggest. No. What about modern dance and hip-hop? Uh, no, Kate says, more definitely. I'll leave it. I'll maybe just leave it there as well, Enda. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much. That was so enjoyable to hear. What I love is hearing the story come alive through your voice. It's excellent. Your first book of stories, Sweet Home, came out with Stinging Fly Press in 2018. And I'm just wondering, you know, had you been writing for some time before this? I was wondering, could you say something about your, if you like, your path to, to publication? Certainly, yes. No, I suppose, Peter, what I'd been doing for many years was writing little bits and pieces every so often, but just really very short form things for my own amusement. And I would have done a blog in about 2010 called Blue Lamp Disco after the discos that the the police used to used to run, community policing discos, quite a bizarre concept. But I would have done little bits of creative work and put that on my blog. But it was only then in 2015, I work, as you were saying, um, and as a school teacher, and I ended up having a... a one afternoon off off work a week for a year, mm. and I was looking to do something with that afternoon, which was going to be something other than just like 
you know, mooching about and frittering my time away, sitting in town, having coffee, reading a magazine or whatever. So I noticed that the Stinging Fly were running this course, which was a six-month fiction workshop in the Irish Writers' Centre. I'd never really written a short story before at all. And I had to write a short story to try to get on the course. So... I tried quite hard. I remember it was 3,000 words, and goodness, I thought I'd written the Odyssey at the end of it. 3,000 words just seemed absolutely colossal. And I wrote that, sent it off, got on the course, and as a result of being in the course, and the whole focus of the course was very much to do with trying to make your writing better. It wasn't trying to get published or anything like that or how to find an agent or any of that type of, that type of stuff. Um, but at the end of that course, I did get one story in the Stinging Fly magazine. And then as a result of that, Declan Mead from Stinging Fly contacted me and said, I would be interested in working on a collection with you, which was wonderful, you know, just absolutely fantastic. And it was all, it was tentative. It wasn't like this is definitely, definitely happening. It was all very tentative, but I kind of knew this was a really big opportunity for me, Peter. And so Declan asked me what I thought I could do in terms of stories. And I was trying to appear dynamic and, you know, terribly capable. And so I said, oh, I can write a story a month. I can write a story a month. And he said, oh, right, okay, let's, let's see. And so I did try to do that. And I suppose that over a course of about 15 months, I wrote about 15 stories in 15 months. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was it. Because I kind of did feel a bit last chance saloonish. I kind of thought, you know, at that stage, what was I, nearly 50? And I kind of thought, this is my big chance here. And so that's why I went just all out. Well done. And that story was called Locksmiths, wasn't it? I think I remember that story. It was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Locksmiths. Yeah, it ended up. It ended up in the first oh, collection. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, that's right. Well done. Um, and also, what a buzz as <laughs> well. You. I mean, their extreme fly press are so great. Kevin Barry, Mary Costa, Sean O'Reilly, Claire Louise Bench. A great list to join. It must have been a huge thrill, was it, Wendy? Mm-hmm. It was a total thrill. It was an absolute thrill. And it was kind of a bit nerve wracking, I suppose, at the beginning. It was, it was a bit, it was a bit nerve wracking because I kind of, I kind of thought, um, look at all these amazing people being published before. And I had basically written absolutely nothing beyond Mm -hmm. just, you know, one or two stories that had done in the course. So Mm -hmm. that was a bit, that was a bit unnerving, I suppose, at the beginning. But what can you do? You've been given the, Given the opportunity, all you can do is just try to get on with it and just do your best. So just had to put all those great figures aside. I was wondering if, because because Wendy, like I, I wanted to ask you the way you that you approach writing stories. I mean, a collection like Dance Move, for instance. I mean, obviously it's made up of stories that stand alone, mm-hmm. but they also they also kind of like seamlessly fall into the pattern of a of, of this collection. They kind of relate to each other in, in lots of ways. And I just wonder when you're working with a collection in mind, or, or do you work with a collection in mind as you write, or is it just one story at a time? Do stories just kind of hit you, or are they more, you know, are you thinking in terms of a bunch of stories together or an ultim- ultimately a kind of collection? Right, so I... Peter, I was just thinking always one story at a time. So I was never really thinking about how these would piece together as a collection and how they would make an absolute, how they would make some sort of cohesive whole. But having said that, thinking one story at a time, but at the same time, you will notice that at no point do I diversify into sort of like alien landings or, um, (laughs) you know, um, rich undergraduates deciding which course they're going to study next year so I, I i don't i suppose my own palette is such um that in a sense everything i i write my own particular individuals and tastes are, are very kind of 
distinctive and there's things that I just know I'm really not that interested in writing about and so that's why or you could you people could look at that and go oh well how very limited you know this always just goes on about the same things but um that means that the the the, the collection itself there was never going to be any issue with the stories not fitting together because in a sense because they're all it's a fairly circumscribed geographical locale because in a sense mm-hmm. my concerns are usually fairly similar the sorts of things that I'm looking at I was never unless one month I just absolutely lost it and decided that I wanted to you know set one somewhere totally different with different sorts of people that were always going to fit together really yeah it's interesting well, we we recently chatted to the actor Gabriel Byrne and he was talking mm-hmm. about the playwright Eugene O'Neill who wrote about how we're all haunted not just by the masks that we wear ourselves but that others wear and I was thinking of your story Gollum where the two sisters and their husbands, mm-hmm. they're very hidden sexual fantasies. They're definitely wearing masks mm-hmm. and they're hiding their deepest sexual lives from one another, aren't they? And uh, this is, I think, something that interests you, the inner lives of people. And in this case, their inner sexual lives in that story, Gollum. Yeah, so that story, yes, that story, Gollum, features two sisters and then their, and then their husbands. And there's all sorts of interlinking kind of desires and dislikes, I suppose you would say, between between these mm-hmm. between these people. And yeah, I said su- I suppose I'm just always, you know, and uh, that's the, something that really fascinates me that people's people's people are people are mysterious and and people's inner worlds really no one has any idea whatsoever and what's what's going on in in um, mm-hmm. anyone's anyone's mind that's why you know sometimes the stories get described as all about ordinary people and all of this and you kind of think you know in a sense yes of course they're they're ordinary in the sense that none of these people are exceptional in terms of achievements or accolades or whatever but you know the ordinary is the extraordinary and i mean I, I, do, I do believe that that anyone, <laughs> you know, you looking off on anyone will seem will seem really really um, will seem really strange. Will seem they'll entertain really odd ideas. Um, will have all sorts of contradictions um, to do with them. All sorts of nuances that surface level just don't don't seem to be there. Yeah. So yeah, that was that was an interesting story to 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 write. Trying to trying to look at all these various yeah. different people's. You know, the surface level, a lot of it is just kind of quite phatic conversation. It's it's kind of quite, you know, pleasant conversation or, you know, just banter, I suppose you would say. But beneath that there's there's so much there's so there's so much else. Yeah. Yeah. And also I it's great to have you here because I can ask mm-hmm. you about some of the stories that really stuck with me. One of them is the story Nostalgia where Drew, like he's a former one-hit wonder singer. I don't want to give away too much about the story, but he takes a boat from Liverpool to Belfast and he quite innocently, I think, sings his old song to a bunch of people. And he has no idea really who they are until it dawns on him. But it made me think about art, that story, and how when we make something, we've no control really over who's going to to take it on board whatever way they want, how people are going to interpret it. Is that something that you were thinking of when you wrote that story about art and where it goes? And that's that's exactly what I was thinking of. You know, I was thinking of things like, say, for example, Tina Turner, simply the best, and how that's kind of appropriated by certain groups in, in, in the North here. And I was thinking about that idea just generally. Springsteen as well, born in the USA, how you put it out there, and then whether it's music or whether it's poetry or whether it's short stories or whatever, 
you then mm. have said goodbye to it in a sense, and it's for other yeah. people to appropriate it or interpret the way that they that they want. And of course, lots of those interpretations are going to be they're either going to reflect your own, or in fact, they might be flattering to you you know there, there's sometimes people have interpreted things I've done and I've been surprised and delighted by what they've got out of it because it was entirely I would say at best unconscious you know if I was if I was if I was doing it but yeah. also as well that people are going to take I would say oppositional readings to your work but also appropriate it in the way that Drew Pearl Drew finds his work appropriated by a particular by a particular group yeah I was interested because I I was thinking, you, you know, uh, when you were talking, you were talking about a, partic- a particular palette that that it, and I and I and I was thinking that's so mm-hmm. true of, I mean, the way that the stories work, and also the way that they suck us in. So you're, we're kind of sucked in immediately to these kind of internal sort of worlds, and very often it seems to me that there are, there's characters that are like Drew that they're they're in a situation that they don't really, they're not fully aware of what's happening around them. And that's very striking in some of the stories like Cell, for instance, Caro in Mm -hmm. Cell, where she's not really clear about the situation that she finds herself in, or even the opening story, mathematics, you know, mm-hmm. the where, where the thing the things happen with the, the the woman and the child, and you're kind of thinking these people are all they're in situations where they're just they're, all the stuff is happening around them, and they're not in control, they're not aware of what of where they are, kind of in it, you know. Yeah, I think so, Peter. Those those are great connections to make, and it's that idea that you know, saying in sale where. In, in Cell, this, this woman, Carol or Caroline, she's part of a sort of a Marxist group, um, sort of radical left, left-wing left group. And initially, there's nothing wrong with them, really. In, initially, they're probably okay. But then things just do that creep where, you know, there's a couple of kind of significant changes in the group, and that then brings about a kind of a decline mm. and brings about a kind of a, a change so that it becomes something so much more sinister. And I suppose I'm interested in that as well, that how things can become normalised. You start off maybe that you do know what's happening and then just there's this this sort of like gradual shift and all the time oddness is becoming normalised so that you then accept it. So, you know, Carol then, she's an intelligent woman, but she ends up accepting a, a, a very um, a very bizarre, abusive, abusive situation. Mm. Yeah. I suppose I think that... Sorry, so I suppose I think there's a lot of us in, in some ways. We're not like Carol, but, you know, people are there and they're probably mm-hmm. thinking about the minutiae of their lives so much of the time that they're not always really taken into account the, the, the grand scheme, the sort of macrocosm. I was thinking something else. I mean, I mean obviously there's been, there's been, it's always been kind of powerful, you know, Northern writers, whether it's poets like Kieran Carson or Michael Longley or Seamus yeah. Heaney or Maeve McGuckian. But also like you think of prose writers, mm-hmm. you think of, you know, Dan Patterson, Noel McNamee, you think of Anna Burns, Jan Carson, Carrie Doherty, Louise Kennedy that we we had on this uh, podcast last year. And I was wondering, I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. is that a, you know, it's kind of part of the context? I mean, do you read, do you encourage each other? Is, is there, do you kind of knock sparks off each other? I mean, are you are you aware of their work and interested in their work or... Yeah, I'm aware of all those. I, I, yeah, I, I read a lot, and I'm pretty. I'm aware of all those people's work, and I've I've read practically all of all of those people's all of those people's work. And I I do think you know that there is a great sense of uh, there's a great sense of community here in terms of writers, and that people are very very supportive. But what I wouldn't say is for for me, it's not kind of like 
you know, everybody hanging around, everybody around a table at a bar, sharing ideas about their their latest their latest project. For me, it's not it's not really it's not really quite quite like that. And you know, somebody like me, I, I work full time as a teacher. You know, and I also feel as well connected to all sorts of other different communities. So, in a sense, I feel very connected to like a a sting and fly community of of people that that people that have been published by Sting and Fly are people that are working with Sting and Fly. I also published by Rough Trade, and so I feel I feel part of that community as well. And and they have been enormously supportive to me. And also as well, then there would be you know another group of people that would be to do with Heavenly Heavenly Records and Caught by the River, and I feel very supported by them too. So I think it's all sorts of and those are kind of intersectional in some ways, but it's there's all sorts of other other sorts of communities to feel to feel part of but yeah i think it's amazing it's amazing to see you know what's what's coming out of this 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 part of uh, this part of the country at, uh, at present yeah great energy yeah i think that's true i mean we both write and work here in dublin so i think it's the same thing mm-hmm. we're aware of each other and we support each other but we're not hanging out with each other all the time necessarily so yeah mm-hmm. but i love stories we were talking earlier um about laughter and i love stories that make me laugh but i also love to walk mm-hmm. away being moved by a story and I think of course you can have both and your stories Wendy are a really fine example of that I suppose I'm getting back to that idea of balance again but a particular mm-hmm. story of yours that was funny in parts but it was also deeply moving was Memento Mori where you know there are two deaths kind of happening at the same time it's a, it's a very sad story and it kind of deals with I thought the cruel reality that people they're both going through loss but they one side can be so lacking in empathy as to how the other person, mm-hmm. you know, is coping with loss and feeling about the loss. Could you talk a little bit about the story? Because I think Memento Mori, it's so powerful and how the idea came to, to you. And of course, I love that there's the surprise of a writer called Wendy in it too. <laughs> that was good. Good little trick there. It's a bit like Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> appearing in his movies, you know. <laughs> yeah, because sometimes people said, who, which one of the people would be most close to you in the in the stories and I thought well I'll just say well actually the person that is mentioned who is called Wendy that is in fact me but yes yeah, so, so Memento yeah. Memento Mori I suppose then there's a couple of things that kind of normally with me it's kind of a there's n- not always just one catalyst for a story there might be like a few might be an impetus here an impetus there and they kind of all kind of come come together sort of concatenation of things but one of the things was those sorts of um, you know the roadside memorials to to people who who've, uh, who've passed mm. away, um, yeah. and I remember just seeing one of those outside somebody's house and thinking, I wonder how the people inside feel about that. You know that that is that is a constant reminder. It is a, it is literally a memento mori. It is it is outside their house and it's a reminder of death, and they're the ones that are seeing that every single day, even though that isn't their loved one. And so I started, I just started, um, I started thinking about that, that whole idea and how some deaths count more than others, how some deaths are, are mediated to us, magazines, whatever, TV, online, and how others pass away absolutely, absolutely unnoticed. And that was what started me, that was what started me thinking about, about that as a story. And I also, I also had wanted to write a story about Sometimes as well, what comes to me is just like a very vivid visual picture. Mm-hmm. And I just was had, had thought about two women, 
you know, on a Sunday afternoon, reading the the, the problem page of the Sunday supplement to, to each other. And that was just, an, just was just something that came to me, just like a little vignette, I suppose. And those two things then worked their way together to make up this make up this this story. I always think about like, the metaphor I always use is like you know penny falls in the amusements, and like putting in pennies, you're putting in pennies, you're putting in pennies, and whatever happens is sometimes you'll just get a kind of a sequence which will then cause yeah those yeah that chain that. that to all the pennies to drop down the chute and that's kind of like the way it works with the story you'll just have a couple of different things that some will work together to to form an idea so that was that yeah it's kind of like this this jigsaw and then it all suddenly clicks and it must be brilliant when that happens wendy although i suppose peter and i write poetry and how long how long is a piece of string when is a poem finished you're never quite sure but it's it's very interesting to hear your process and how it all comes together. It would be nice to hear a piece of Memento Mori if that was possible. That'd be lovely to hear it. Maybe sure. the opening section, Wendy. What do you think? Yes, I'll read. Yes, I'll read. I'll read the opening section. The problem with the story is when you read halfway through. There's so much, a, such a rigmarole of well, this is this person, this yeah. is that person, this has just happened. So easier just to start from okay, the beginning. Okay, that'd be lovely. Okay, I'll do that. The books in the library are fairly limited, mainly true crime and thrillers. Every so often, Gillian fills in a transfer request for titles of interest, and within three or four weeks, they come. Most frequently, she asks for books about gardens, because although there's a small plot here, opportunities are limited. In terms of other reading material, it usually takes a couple of days before she gets the Sunday paper, but... She's used to that now. And anyway, she focuses so little on the actual news that it wouldn't matter. A paper one week, two weeks old. On the last page of the magazine supplement, a woman in response to a problem or supposed difficulty gives circumlocutory and banal advice that spans a number of paragraphs. Tracy used to read it out every Sunday. She'd be lying on the sofa and the fire would be lit. Her own counsel was blunt. My advice to this person is basically to wise the fuck up, she'd say. Gillian pretended to wince, but really, in most circumstances, it would have been beneficial for the people to take heed. Yet, there were times when someone who seemed a prime candidate for harsh pragmatism was treated with a degree of kindness because he or she reminded Tracy of somebody she used to know in London, in Liverpool, in other lives. And so when Gillian eventually does get the Sunday paper on a Tuesday or Wednesday, she reads the problem page first and thinks of Tracy. Uh, thank you so much, Wendy. That was Wendy Erskine reading from Dance Move, her distinctive new collection of short stories written in a style, as you can hear, unmistakably hers. And it's published by Stinging Fly Press and all details will be available on booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. Thank you, Wendy, for coming in. It was absolutely brilliant to chat away to. It was great to talk to you. It was lovely. We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? 
Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so be back again. We'll have the toast on, we'll have the kettle boiling, we will have more books to discuss and we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye everybody. Goodbye.